Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the special September 11th episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Nick Gosling, and over the past two months, Doug Stewart and myself have conducted three interviews with three subject matter experts in the field of foreign policy. We're now 16 years out from September 11th, 2001, and so we wanted to ask these experts questions about where they thought the current state of U.S. foreign policy was, and what has the country learned since then, and what really hasn't been learned, and are we making progress, and what are the current threats that, that they think are, are most pressing? So we will be joined by Professor Robert Pape of the University of Chicago, who's one of the world's leading experts in the subject of suicide terrorism. We will also be joined by Professor Lawrence Wilkerson, a former colonel who was chief of staff to Colin Powell and is now a professor at William & Mary. And lastly, we will be joined by none other than Dr. Ron Paul. Now, you'll hear some interesting things. In these segments, uh, we, we asked some, somewhat of the same questions to all three men, but also some different questions as well. Um, so you'll, you'll see a little overlap, and you'll, you'll get uh, their unique takes on where they think the country has, has gone since the early 2000s and what progress we're making and what progress we, we aren't making, in fact, where we may be regressing. Um, some of the answers you may find yourself disagreeing with. Uh, I know that Doug and myself found ourselves disagreeing with certain elements of certain answers, but that's that's totally fine. We will present uh, our guests' comments here in their complete form without any uh, any editing, so you can listen and decide for yourselves. So without further ado, let's proceed to the interviews. Joining us now is Dr. Robert Pape, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago and Director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. He's also one of the world's leading experts on international security affairs and suicide terrorism. Dr. Pape, thank you for joining us here today. Glad I could be here. Here we are 16 years out now from 9-11. And Suicide terrorism is still very much an issue in U.S. geopolitical affairs and in and in world international security affairs. What are some common misconceptions that people have about suicide terrorism and why people uh, are are driven to commit these these actions? Yeah, the most common misconception is that suicide terrorism is a product of religion and particularly Islamic fundamentalism. The reason for that misconception um, goes right back to 9-11. For many people, they didn't even think about suicide terrorism until 9-11. And then on 9-11, they saw 19 um, individuals, uh, the hijackers who carried out the 9-11 attacks, And they saw that all 19 of them were Islamic fundamentalists. And so it was very easy to jump to the conclusion that um, 
Islamic fundamentalism, religion, must be driving this. And of course, it's a suicide attack. So uh, maybe people are doing it because um, they're giving up their world worldly life uh, for some future reward in heaven. Um, but this is definitely not the case. Um, so after 9-11, I compiled the first complete database of all suicide attacks around the world. The first version of this database went from 1980 to 2003 and um, uh, covered over 350 suicide attacks. Those were corroborated, uh, detailed evidence about each and every one of those attacks. And what I discovered was that there were many, many secular and non-Muslim suicide attacks. The world leader at the time from 1980 to 2003 was in fact not an Islamic group at all. They were the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. They're a Marxist group, a secular group, a Hindu group. The Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka did more attacks than Hamas, um, and they were um, not on our radar because they weren't attacking us, and they weren't attacking our the uh, close friends of the Americans. And so it was hard to see uh, some of the attacks that were occurring around the world. Well, what I discovered was that the leading cause of suicide terrorism was not religion, but it was um, military intervention and specifically a military occupation. That what you see in both secular and religious suicide terrorists is that about 95% of them are in direct response to a military intervention, um, often a direct military occupation, where there are tanks, fighter aircraft, and armor units occupying territory that the terrorists prize. That's what Lebanon in the 1980s, Hamas, uh, the, the, that is the Palestinian suicide terrorists in the 1990s, um, that's what all the suicide terrorism that we've seen in Iraq since the American occupation have in common. And that lesson that suicide attacks are in direct response to military intervention by um, uh, those outside of the community that the terrorist prize is a critical lesson that we need to learn still because um, it is the number one thing that gets us into trouble. So in the minds of these suicide terrorists, in, in, the, in the psychology of it, what are they actually trying to accomplish? Is it just to uh, strike fear into the hearts of their occupiers? Is it to ultimately force uh, the, the occupying military to withdraw? Uh, is it to create confusion and economic instability by by making these large militaries uh, ch chase around this phantom kind of enemy? What 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 is their actual strategy? We we see uh, several different motives here, but overwhelmingly, the strategy of suicide terrorist uh, uh, organizations and the individuals who follow out and carry out suicide attacks um, is to compel that enemy, that military enemy that is intervening to control territory that the terrorists prize to withdraw. Uh, and they're doing that because uh, they want to preserve the way of life um, of the local community. And they believe that the military intervention is threatening their way of life. Um, we in the West may not agree with 
a way of life uh, that they these terrorist groups want to preserve. Many of terrorist groups are um, extremely uh, um, um, oppressive toward uh, women uh, in their societies. Um, but that should not cause us to overlook that uh, the terrorist groups, uh, the overseas terrorist groups that are using suicide terrorism are often trying to preserve their own autonomous way of life, their ability to call the shots, if you would, inside their own society, and to use suicide attack as a way to push back those military intervening interveners um, so that they have more latitude and autonomy to run their societies the way they want to. As we're reflecting on 9-11 specifically, what were the the actions or was there a particular single action that kind of pushed things over the edge that that you would say sparked the 9-11 attacks? At the time on 9-11, we didn't know really much about the precipitant causes of uh, bin Laden and the 19 hijackers. Uh, but in the years since, we've learned a tremendous amount. Um, you see, um, in the um, early, uh, in the 1990s, the United States um, began the 1990s with no military deployments to speak of in the Persian Gulf. Um, we had bases without troops, but no, no troops. And then in um, late the fall of 1990, the United States, along with other countries in the world, deployed a huge ground army to the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, other countries in the Persian Gulf, to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Um, we ended that uh in just six months. So we fought a war with Saddam Hussein's army in 1991. Uh, we kicked him out of Kuwait and kicked Saddam Hussein's army back deep into Iraq. And then we uh, never fully left. From 1991 through 2001, the United States deployed between 15,000 and 30,000 combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula every single day. And this is something we had not done um, um, before 1990, going all the way back to World War II. Well, that uh, presence um, was very, very uh, the key inspiration for bin Laden to motivate uh, individuals to join his cause and to motivate um, the 9-11 hijackers. And I say that with some confidence because we have the martyr videos of many of the 9-11 hijackers. We didn't have those videos on the day of 9-11 itself, but Al-Qaeda released them in the subsequent years. And we can see person by person uh, of the 19 hijackers talking about their reasons for doing their attack and specifically the occupation of um, the Arabian Peninsula by um, American military forces. In fact, one of those uh, martyr videos has snippets of President Bush. This is the first President Bush uh, in um, 1991 coming and visiting the military forces in Saudi Arabia, just to really drive the point home that their uh, uh, motives had everything to do with American military presence on the Arabian Peninsula. Well, let's talk about ISIS a little bit here, because that's kind of the most uh, pressing issue, I suppose you, you might say, that people are aware of that's kind of going on in the world right now. Uh, and now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the leadership of ISIS uh, 
came mostly out of the Iraqi army. Right? They, they were they were Iraqi military officers under Saddam Hussein in, in what was essentially a, a secular uh, Arab regime. Is that correct? Uh, a, a large number of them. So the ISIS leadership really comes um, in three parts. Uh, one part is definitely the former Ba'athists, the secularists under Saddam Hussein. Um, another third um, is uh, coming from uh, Sunni uh, tribe, tribal leaders. That is, their main loyalty um, is to uh, local clans and tribes inside of Iraq uh, and Syria. Um, and then third, um, there are some uh, religious leaders, many, most mostly Iraqi, but there are uh, some religious leaders who you would, uh, I would say, are 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 clearly motivated by uh, uh, by religion. Uh, but what they did is they they came. They've um, uh, that group uh, that we call ISIS is a manifestation of the original uh, terrorist group of um, al-Qaeda in Iraq that really started to carry out suicide attacks in Iraq after our military occupation in 2003. You see, before we occupied Iraq in 2003, Iraq never experienced a suicide attack in its history. After our occupation, al-Qaeda in Iraq really formed and congealed, and it began directly with our occupation to carry out suicide attacks. Well, there's been ebb and flow of this battle between um, uh, the uh, Americans, between the Iraqi government, and uh, the terrorist group, uh, originally called um, al-Qaeda in Iraq, for um, now almost 15 years. Um, and that is uh, uh, that group then has morphed several times and is now what we call ISIS. Um, and so we are still dealing with the monster that we essentially created uh, with the occupation of Iraq in 2003. There's uh, lots of ebb and flows in the story along those last 15 years, um, but this just shows just how problematic it is to invade and occupy countries. When we're thinking about these various attacks that keep cropping up, uh, it, and often it's it's ISIS or someone connected to ISIS or claims to be connected to ISIS uh, that that claims responsibility for you know, driving a truck into a crowd or just going in some random crowded area and start shooting. Are, are these individuals who are doing this at, at, at these levels? I mean, it seems to me like ISIS as, as it's infrastructurally, militarily, it it mainly is about holding ground and actually trying to create a a geopolitical state. So these guys who are out here actually doing these these lone wolf type attacks, uh, how, what is driving them to that? Are they getting orders from the ISIS higher ups? Are they kind of being brainwashed and just sort of doing it on their own? What is the cause here? Uh, well, you have a big part of the picture uh, in your question, which is um, ISIS itself and its supporters are driven by territorial goals to control territory, um, to that is to politically control that territory and to militarily control the territory um, in uh, Iraq and Syria. And as uh, 
uh, the West has intervened to shrink their territory control, that's when ISIS has uh, called on supporters to lash out against the West. And that those uh, attacks really started in, in the West um, in a significant way, especially the suicide attacks, in the fall of 2015, after about a year of our renewed intervention to uh, against um, uh, the terrorist group uh, to shrink its territory in Iraq and Syria. And um, over the last uh, uh, several years, uh, Americans have led a coalition which has successfully uh, shrunk ISIS territory in Iraq and Syria. And the more that ISIS territory is has uh, been taken away from it by Western military power, the more ISIS uh, leaders are calling on individuals to um, uh, to attack the countries that are part of the Western military coalition against it. And so we are seeing attacks in um, uh, France. We're seeing attacks in Belgium. Uh, we've seen attacks uh, in um, the United States. We've seen attacks in Britain. Uh, the countries that are being struck aren't just random countries in the West. They're countries that are part of the Western military coalition against ISIS. Um, sometimes those are just plain um, inspirational calls by the leaders of ISIS to do those attacks. Sometimes there's uh, some coordination. But what they have in common is ISIS leaders and ISIS is, is responding to the loss of its uh, uh, of its territory. In the years since 9-11, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like political discourse on this issue, at least amongst mainstream politics, has, has gotten any better. In fact, I mean, it seems like we've seen increased interventions in the Middle East uh, throughout the last eight, ten years or so. And, and now we have a new administration and we, we are still seeing more of kind of the same in that regard. In your view, would you say that uh, U.S. politicians and, and diplomats have really learned anything uh, from this research and from these studies in the last 16 years, or is it just kind of uh, the, the same old demagoguery as it's always been? Well, I think we need to separate um, what we see in uh, the public, say, on cable news channels, um, from what we see um, among um, a number of our political leaders. Because I do think that we have seen uh, some political leaders uh, really take to heart the uh, empirical analysis and the new studies uh, that occurred after 9-11 about the causes of suicide terrorism. Uh, Dr. Ron Paul is, is just one of those. Um, uh, but we also see this um, on the Democratic side uh, as well. Um, uh, you'll notice um, that when you look at many of President Obama's, former President Obama's speeches, um, he often uh, really um, disparage the idea that we should deal with uh, terrorism by sending uh, large ground armies in to deal with the problem. Um, and that is correlates very directly with the kind of findings um, that we've learned about uh, how um, the best mobilization appeal for suicide terrorist groups is the presence of ground forces on their territory. So every time we think, oh, things couldn't get worse, well, no, we can actually make them a lot worse uh, here by um, uh, ground force deployments. Um, and so what I think you're seeing is, I actually think you're seeing some progress here among um, some enlightened parts of the uh, political spectrum here. Um, but I think that when it comes to um, ordinary discussions here, 
Yeah, you, you really can't have a serious discussion here to help inform people about uh, the causes of a complex subject like suicide attack in a soundbite, um, because in, a, in, in two or three minutes, the most you can really do is reflect back to people what they already think. Um, and so I think that if we live in a world uh, where uh, it's profit-driven cable news, it's no surprise that what we tend to get are um, uh, cable news uh, uh, shows that simply are trying to keep audience. And the best way to keep an audience is tell them what they, you know, that validate what they already think. Um, and that's very, um, that, that doesn't work so well with a complex subject like suicide attack, which really does rely, you know, require um, something more like a 15 or 20 minute real discussion of the facts and the evidence here so that we can bring up some of the uh, the facts and evidence, people can question them, and we can have a real discussion. So as we kind of close this out, what would you say, uh, or what would your advice to policymakers be regarding what what should be done in order to stop this, this tide of attacks? What do policymakers yeah. need to do in order to cut off the sources of uh, of this terrorism and, and ultimately kind of change the dynamic. Yeah, what I would say is is two things. Um, I think number one, it's uh, we are we should resist uh, ground force interventions, and I think we are. But I would go a little further than just that. I think number two, um, what we've really done since nine eleven is we've been actually uh, figuring out how to win military battles against terrorist groups, but not winning the peace. So we have won the war, so to speak, the military part, but we've often then just a few years later come right back with the same problems. And the reason is because what happened when we went into the uh, Middle East, into Iraq in 2003, is we fundamentally broke Iraq. Iraq then spilled over and fundamentally broke Syria. And you were seeing the breakage of these political units across the Persian Gulf. And now, of course, we're seeing instability in Turkey, which is a country of 100 million people. Um, and so what we really um, not fully come to grips with is that we have got to uh, work much, much more on political solutions here and not just focus on uh, the military issues. All right, Dr. Robert Pape of the University of Chicago, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Absolutely, thanks for having me. We're now joined by Professor Lawrence Wilkerson, Distinguished Adjunct of Government and Public Policy at William & Mary, he is a retired U.S. Army colonel who also served as chief of staff to Colin Powell and later became a staunch critic of neoconservative foreign policy. Professor Wilkerson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So some of our listeners will probably be familiar with, with your work or have seen you uh, on the news at some point commenting on foreign policy. But for those who aren't familiar, can you give us just a little bit of, of your background, uh, how you got involved in, in the public policy sphere and, and in the government sphere, and sort of what happened to uh, change your perception of U.S. foreign policy in the run-up to the Iraq War in 2003? I started teaching at the nation's war colleges, uh, the Naval War College first in Newport, Rhode Island, and then the Marine Corps War College in Quantico, Virginia. National security, government, U.S. government in general, 
strategy, policy, those sorts of esoteric subjects. And so to an academic's point of view, as well as experiential, because I was a lieutenant colonel and colonel in the Army at that time, I began to learn about what we've done to this country in building a national security state since 1947 and the end of World War II. And I put that experience uh, to work for me, uh, <laughs> some positive, some negative, uh, both as a special assistant as an Army colonel to Colin Powell when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1989 to 93, and then again as his chief of staff when he was Secretary of State uh, in the early 2000s. So I, I bring both, in that, and now, of course, I've been teaching for 12 years over 400 students on two different campuses. The same thing, but with all that background and experience and academia to supplement it. So I, I, the study of the national security state, what the United States of America has become since 1947 and the end of World War II, and what we are today, which is a far-flung empire that looks a whole lot like Rome. Um, that's my area of study and my area of experience. So what happened in in the early 2000s that sort of precipitated this idea that we're going to go back again into the Middle East? I mean, we now know that you know, Iraq had nothing to do with, with 9-11. What was, what was the purpose of the invasion from Washington's perspective? There were at least, and my students have borne me out on this in their case studies of the so-called 2003 Second Gulf War, there were at least half a dozen reasons we went into Iraq, none of which accorded with any genuine national security interest of the United States other than oil. And to this day, I believe Vice President Cheney's ultimate motivation was that oil. Ever since Franklin Roosevelt and the Saudi king met to decide on who would get Saudi oil and in general Middle Eastern oil, uh, Japan, Europe, the United States, and so forth, all our allies. Um, we have been doing that. We have made, as Jimmy Carter finally said explicitly in 77 or 78, as I recall, uh, the Persian Gulf is a vital national security interest to the United States of America. Vital simply means we'll die for it. Uh, but there are a lot of other reasons we went to war in Iraq. Uh, one was to show the world that they couldn't do a 9-11 on us without having some reciprocity, and they wouldn't like the reciprocity at all. Another was to make Israel's position in the world more secure. This is what some people thought. Another was to uh, essentially insert ourselves back into a region where previously we had only had a strategy of offshore balancing. That is to say, we would never put for a prolonged period of time U.S. military forces on the ground in the region, knowing that that would be tantamount to suicide. And we're seeing the results of the reverse of that decision today. It is tantamount to suicide. And if we go into Iran to make it even worse, we'll see, see that suicide, I think, coming to uh, an even more rapid fruition. Um, so there are a number of reasons for our having gone into Iraq. And as I said, none of them except possibly oil, and even that not now since we are independent of the region, uh, having any real national security interest. You might say that we went into Iraq because we could, which is essentially the rationale for most of the wars we're fighting right now, 
even Afghanistan posts are having eliminated al-Qaeda there, um, it's because we can. And that's really that aspect of the national security state and of empire in general, which ought to trouble every American citizen who stops to think about it. Now, you did briefly touch on something I, I want to ask about in a little more depth. And you you have quite a bit of experience dealing with the uh, religious element in, in U.S. foreign policy, and particularly the neoconservative foreign policy. Uh, now, we here at the Libertarian Christian Institute, you know, we're anti-war. We promote a non-interventionist foreign policy. And so we're all the time butting heads with the neocons who are promoting this sort of American manifest destiny uh, over over all the globe. So, can you comment a little bit on what what kind of influence did religious leaders and religious arguments have in, let's say, the the, the first half of, of the previous decade uh, in, in the run up to these conflicts? And then, secondly, is it still as strong as it was, or do you think it's waning? That's a very interesting, and it's a complex question and a complex answer. I think what we're seeing, what we have seen, and I don't know when it's going to peak and fade, if it will, I assume it will, something not unlike the Great Awakening, which occurred in the previous century, and some people probably are somewhat aware of. And it features um, in this particular uh, episode uh, a second Great Awakening, if you will, some 60 to 70 million Americans who are best labeled probably is as evangelical Christians. And there's a segment within them, and I've heard different numbers as to how many of these there are within that 60, 70 million of what I would call fundamentalists. That is to say, and I've said this before, they're American Taliban. Uh, and that's not too strong a phrase to use, I don't think, because they have, as you intimated in your question, been extremely influential, particularly since Ronald Reagan's first time, on convincing or at least using their influence to try and convince national security leaders to take action, um, not necessarily directly in the name of Christianity, but, but certain, certainly for the purposes that they judge Christianity to be on this earth. And that includes war. It includes most most heinously and nefariously, in my opinion, war, and it includes even in some instances, for example, money collected in the United States and sent to Israel to finance West Bank settlements. In other words, to finance apartheid in Israel, to finance the occupation, which is illegal under international law in Israel, and to finance people like Bibi Netanyahu extremely right-wing government leader in Israel right now. So this group, uh, to answer your question directly, I think in its fundamentalist nature, and I use that term to differentiate from other evangelicals because they're, I think, more genuine Christians, is very inimical to U.S. interests because it does pursue war as a major, if not the preeminent, instrument of U.S. national power because it believes, like that earlier Great Awakening, that it has this Christian mission to go out into the world and kill people for public purposes, for state purposes, which is nonsensical. As one of my good friends said the other day, himself a devout Christian, I don't understand these people. Their Christ is not my Christ. 
Now, at the time we're recording this, uh, Trump had just given his big Afghanistan speech when he rolled out his supposedly new strategy, which many of us would observe is really not that different from what's been happening over the past 15, 16 years. What's your take on Trump's plans here, and and what can we expect to see? I think this is uh, a painful, a sad example of what military history throws out of almost any nation that's ever used military power as its principal or one of its principal instruments. It, it, it's what generals within that military power do more often than not. And it is the greatest strategic failure in military history for the past 5,000 years. And what that is, is reinforcing failure. The most difficult thing for a general to do, an admiral to do, believe me, I've been there, is to admit failure and to go away from it, to retreat from it, to withdraw from it, to say, I've failed. The military instrument is not the proper instrument here, or whatever the reason is, and get out. That's the most difficult thing generals and admirals have found to do throughout history. And generally speaking, they've been destroyed by that failure. That's what we're doing in Afghanistan. How many times do we have to hear from some general officer, more troops, please, more troops, please, and think with any kind of sanity and sobriety that if more troops go, the situation is going to change? That's like the old proverbial beating your head against the wall until it's bloody and then looking back and having someone tell you, well, beat your head some more and perhaps it'll change or perhaps you'll beat the wall down. This is absurd. But as I said, it is one of the most common mistakes in military history that generals think and presidents listen to them and prime ministers listen to them, that more troops will make a difference when in fact, all the evidence is screaming at them is you're going to get the same result you got last time and last time and last time. The the difference, for example, in the two major U.S. strategic failures in the 20th and early 21st century, Vietnam, and now what I'll call Southwest Asian wars in general, the difference is that Vietnam at the 10-year point had a confluence of events They were marked by a major civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of course. A major anti-war effort, largely motivated, I think, in, in, in its main by people being conscripted, the draft. Um, and those two things combine the movement of, uh, for civil rights and the movement against the war in Vietnam and cause that great strategic failure I just described to you to be ameliorated. Not by the generals, mind you. The generals wanted more troops there, and they were saying, give us more troops and we'll win in Vietnam, which was sheer nonsense, but understandable. That's what generals do. They make these huge strategic errors. But the people, the American people, made them stop that war. And so after 10 years and horrible casualties on both sides, millions on the Vietnamese side, um, we ended that war. And we ended that huge strategic failure. There's no such outpouring today. There is no such outpouring. I've been in all 50 states. I've talked in all 50 states on college campuses, at community centers, all over the place. And Americans do not care about Afghanistan. 
Iraq, Syria, or any place else. They just don't care because they have no skin in the game. There is no draft today. There is no conscription. There is no son or daughter or brother or sister or father or mother or whatever getting killed or horribly wounded in these wars because less than 1% of the country is serving. That's 300-plus million people who aren't doing a damn thing. They're not even paying a war tax. Check the debt out lately. We're headed towards $20 trillion or greater. So this is a unique set of circumstances that, as I've said many times, I think is going to put end to this empire. Whether the end is a smooth and downhill slope, like, for example, Britain had at the end of its imperial reign, or whether it's catastrophic remains to, see, remains to be seen. But right now, looking at Trump, I would vote for the catastrophic end rather than the smooth end. As we close this out, what would you say are the biggest or the biggest foreign policy threats facing the U.S. today? And what are the top three changes that need to be made in Washington or in public consciousness in order to try to stave off the damage or, or turn the ship around? Oh, that's a huge question. Of course, I think the existential threat we all confront, and, and I have to point it out because it's not just the United States, it's all of us. It's the entire human race is climate change. Um, I happen to believe the scientists. I've seen the sea rise tables. I've been in Norfolk, Virginia, for example. I've seen the billions of dollars of estimates on what it's going to take to save the largest shipyards the United States owns on the eastern seaboard. The sea is rising so fast there. Today, uh, when we were talking about this recently, one woman in the back of the theater raised her hand and said, don't tell me about 20 years from now or 30 years from now. The water's in my backyard now. Well, she's right. In Norfolk, that's the case. And elsewhere along the eastern seaboard, too, it's beginning to become known to people that this is a number one threat. And incidentally, this is a national security threat of the first order because it is going to bring all manner of problems for the U.S. Armed Forces as they try to deal with a massive increase in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions all across the globe. So this is a huge threat. The threats that are being thrown at us that are more topical, more uh, in our face, more on Donald Trump's agenda, if you will, the DPRK, North Korea, Iran, Russia, especially Russia in the uh, old uh, area of its sphere of influence like Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and so forth, and other things like that. Are, are real, and they're apt to do some, some danger, especially with a president who doesn't seem to know what he's doing uh, with regard to foreign policy and national security policy. But they're manageable. Um, if, if, you just, if, if Trump were just to back off and leave them alone, the institutional fabric of this country would manage them quite well, I think. Um, you can see that happening right now with North Korea, where I think we're getting ready uh, in some real ways to start probably a, a dialogue that will defuse a rather tense situation on the Korean Peninsula. But they're not the they're not the kinds of threats that ought to be given the uh, the, the the priority and the, the high level of interest that they are being are being given right now in rhetoric at least, because they're they're simply tactical threats, if you will. They're not deep strategic threats like climate change is. Or like, for example, our infrastructure and not doing anything about that is. Or 
our debt and not doing anything about that. Those are far more existential-like threats than any of these various things we throw up all the time as being uh, absolutely going to kill us tomorrow morning if we don't watch out. And terrorism is one of the worst in that regard. You may have seen the Cato Institute's publication not too long ago where they listed threats like dying in an airplane crash, dying in a car crash, and so forth. And terrorism was so far down that it equated roughly with a lightning strike. That is to say, an American has about as much chance of being struck by lightning as they do of being killed by a terrorist attack. So, and yet we spent trillions of dollars on that. What would I do? Three or four things that I would do to change this right away? I'd wake up the American people, first of all. The American people have got to awaken, or a significant majority of them have to. Or this democracy is finished, if it's even still a democracy today. Um, if you, As Jefferson and Franklin and Madison and Monroe and all of our founders said, you can't have a democracy with apathetic, ignorant people. And so, I mean, how do you have an, a, a democracy with the, the, the average citizen we have out there today? So you got to change that. Um, you do that through education, through enlightenment, through doing the small things that I've tried to do, going around the country and talking and so forth. Second thing I do is throw every single senator and congressman out of the Congress. I don't care if you think your individual congressman is doing well while you rate the whole body at 9%. That's ridiculous. Throw every single one of them out. Get a new one in there. If they don't do better, throw them out too. We need an entirely new legislator. It's broken. It's dysfunctional. It's sick. And it's sick on both sides, Democrat and Republican. Uh, I might leave Angus, Angus King from Maine and maybe Bernie Sanders in there because they're independents, but I wouldn't leave anybody else in there. And then the third thing I would do is I would have a complete revamp of the way we do business like we did in 1947 with the National Security Act of that year. And what by that, I mean, you either you either on the extreme end have a constitutional convention and you look at that document that's not a pact for suicide and hasn't been changed really materially in a long time. Or if you can't go that far, because that takes three quarters of the states, three quarters of the people, all that sort of stuff, it's tough to do. Then at least you have a, a come to Jesus meeting, if you will, in the Congress. And you say, these are the things we need to change about the institutional fabric of this republic because that fabric has become dysfunctional. It's torn. It's not working very well. One of the things, for example, I do is get rid of the Electoral College. I would take a real hard look. I know this is going to sound radical, but I'd take a really hard look at the states. You have states like Alabama and Mississippi who are negative states. That is to say, only through revenue sharing do they exist. California and New York produce 90, 100, 200 billion dollars worth of GDP, and some of that goes to Mississippi and Alabama to keep them on life support. So I would look at even restructuring the country. I'd tell Wyoming, for example, with 400,000 citizens and two senators, get thee into California, Wyoming. You are ridiculous out there as a separate independent state all by yourself. Get into California and become effective within that mass of power that California represents. California, when the UK um, suffers the effects of Brexit to, their full, to its full extent, the UK is going to fall behind California in terms of economic power. California is the fourth or fifth economic power in the world. They could break away from the United States tomorrow morning and be an independent state. 
probably be better off for it too. So these are the kinds of things I think they're traumatic, they're radical even, but they're going to have to be thought about and they're going to have to be looked at or we're not going to make it through the 21st century. All right, Professor Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you very much for joining us here today. Surely. Thanks for having me. Our last guest here on this episode needs no introduction. It's Dr. Ron Paul. Many of you who are listening have probably become libertarians in large part due to his influence. So we are very grateful to have him here with us today. Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us. It's very nice to be with you. We're 16 years out now from 9-11. What do you think is the current state of U.S. foreign policy? I mean, have we made strides, at least in the public's perception, or does it seem like we're going backwards in some ways? In Washington and the actual policy, it keeps getting worse every single day. But I think the American people are waking up, but their voices aren't heard for various reasons. And the people are being more resistant than ever before, uh, in spite of all the reports and what you hear on the TV and what some of the polling will show. But I think the American people are basically uh, opposed to a lot of what we're doing. So uh, the, the big disconnect is what the people really want and need versus uh, how much foreign policy is out of our hands, uh, you know, and controlled by the people who influence our government. And sometimes uh, they're not, the people who really have the control are not readily apparent. But uh, I think uh, there's more people now, you know, that are at least thinking about non-interventionism. I think uh, when I went to Washington in 1976, first time, uh, nobody would dare say these words. Uh, but it's, it's, a, a little bit safer to talk about it, but there's still a lot of people who will come down hard on an individual like myself or anybody else that talks about not supporting all these wars as being un-American and not supportive of troops and, and that sort of thing. But uh, no, there's some headway that's being made, uh, and it's going to get better because the system that we have and our failures around the world are becoming more apparent every day. Uh, we cannot maintain our empire, so it will come to an end, and that's what we ought to be prepared for. What's your analysis on what Trump has done in the foreign policy realm so far? I mean, there there were a lot of people who going in at least thought that he, you know, wouldn't necessarily buy the neoconservative line uh, and would maybe be a little bit more non-interventionist. But it seems like now we have the Sabler rattling against North Korea. And then, of course, there's the the Russia stuff going on and, and Iran is being threatened. Um, what's your take on that? He uh, He's just confused a lot of people. I don't think he comes from a precise philosophy. He's not a dedicated neoconservative. Uh, he's not a progressive Democrat. He's not a libertarian non-interventionist. He's just sort of somebody that rambles on. Uh, you know, just recently, I think yesterday, they put up some quotes from him from 1999, and he was very, very much in favor of a sensible to North Korea and talk to him. But as soon as, you know, he gets in, it's a different story. And of course, uh, Bush uh, painted North Korea as part of the evil empire. And uh, nobody talks about what would be best for America and for peace. And uh, they just go on. So Trump Trump confuses things. He's, he's not giving us much support. And you don't know what he'll say tomorrow. But right now, uh, he's much more interventionist and more militant than he was in his campaign. Because one of the reasons why a lot of libertarian-leaning people were 
hopeful, and I kept my fingers crossed because he said some things that made some sense about uh, about Russia. Uh, but uh, so did George uh, George W. Bush say some sensible things about a humble foreign policy and minding our own business and get out of nation building in the year 2000. And of course, look what happened. What do you think is the the biggest foreign policy issue facing the United States today? I mean, what would be the biggest blunder that you think we could realistically find ourselves in in the near future? Well, there are so many choices. And uh, when I do my program, the Liberty Report, the other day we were talking about uh, which which is the greatest threat. Uh, where's the next war going to start? Is it going to be North Korea or will it be Iran or what? whatnot? And uh, there are just so many choices and so many ongoing. It's just horrible. You know, the ongoing wars of the last 15 years, none of them have ended well, and uh, we haven't created any stability. Uh, so it's, it's the overall policy that is so bad and, uh, and how it's uh, destroying our liberties here at home and destroying our financial system because it is a major contributor to us going bankrupt. But uh, I think the, uh, the Korean thing has to be, you know, f- uh, uh, considered one of the most, uh, you know, immediate threats because who knows what they're going to do. And um, it's one minute I think, well, we can't be so foolish as to start dropping bombs on North Korea. They haven't invaded anybody. Uh, They haven't, uh, you know, they threaten us if we bomb them, but nobody will pay any attention to that. So, yeah, they talk talk tough, but all they're doing is answering back to our, uh, you know, our threats of them. But that that could just get – our bombing of North Korea is probably the most immediate serious threat in a technical way. In the broad way, it's just interventionism. We just don't need to intervene. We don't need to be in 120 countries. As I've said for so many years, you know, we just marched into these countries. We ought to just march home. We don't need occupation and nation building, but we have to be honest about that and actually do it. And it'll come because pretty soon we'll be like the Soviets. Our, will, our system will collapse for economic reasons, not because anybody has invaded us. And what do you think that's going to look like when that does hit? I mean, I, I'm surprised, actually, that we're almost 10 years out from the 2008 downturn. I thought that the big crash, the dollar crisis, would come way before now. I mean, I'm, I'm actually shocked that the Fed has been able to, <laughs> to keep this up for so long. Um, so w- when do you think it might, it might happen and what might it look like? Well, uh, I think you're right on being suspicious. Why didn't it happen five or ten years ago? Because the foundation of the system has eroded. I remember when there was the big break in the conventional Bretton Woods system, the pseudo-gold standard, and that was the closing of the gold window. And I knew that was ushering in a very, very dangerous economic period, and the 70s were horrible. But like you said, the Fed and the banksters have been able to hold things together, so the trust has been greater than anybody anticipated. And uh, although you have to have objective monetary standards for economic growth, uh, the the, the uh, trust in the currency is subjective. And as long as you have that subjective support, you know, uh, people trusting the dollar, that is. And we uh, are a powerful nation. We still have a lot of wealth. We have, we have a clout economically, uh, and we have the reserve currency of the world. And uh, it's lasted a 
lot longer than anybody uh, believed. But that's also not inconsistent with Austrian economics because uh, they, uh, Austrian economics teaches that there is a subjective part of how people value things. And as long as there is trust there, you can't create trust out of thin air and say, you know, create pieces of paper in a primitive economy and say, okay, we're all in agree that this pieces of paper are money. That, that doesn't work. Money has to originate as a sound currency, and the dollar originated as something backed by silver and gold. But the trust can last longer than the actual uh, reasons for it, uh, which means that we live in a very, very precarious system, and like in the last two days, things uh, have changed. In the last six months, uh, the dollar has started to go down. The uh, deficits continue to explode, and uh, this uh, this means the foundation is gone. This could be the beginning of that very big correction that you're talking about, but it might not be. You know, uh, the uh, timing of events uh, is not possible uh, because you don't know how people are going to react, but there's enough reasons for people to panic, and a lot of people haven't necessarily panicked. Uh, I mean, I suspected things were going to go badly in 1971. So people kid me about being worried. And I said, yeah, they kid me about not taking advantage of all this wonderful growth. And I said, yeah, because I thought something something would come to the point where the dollar would be destroyed. So I systematically, you know, bought gold and silver. You know, gold was back then $35 an ounce. So it lingers on. But uh, when when they lose it, everybody's when they lose confidence, everybody's going to know about it because we won't be talking about uh, $800 gold or $1,300 gold. You're going to be talking about uh, you know a system that doesn't function anymore, and uh, nobody knows what the value would be in the in the countries that totally destroy their currency. That it goes to infinity. But I think the world will probably wake up and decide that we have to have some monetary reform in order to preserve of the system. If not, uh, it's, it's going to lead to very, very big political and economic problems for the entire world. Now, in 2015, you released the book Swords into Plowshares, which the title is taken from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and w- one reviewer, in fact, I think it was Lawrence Vance, who's a, an affiliate of our organization, uh, writing on lourockwell.com, said it was maybe your most important book, uh, because it's very personal. Can you can you talk a little bit about how how your faith has led you to these these conclusions and really a lifetime of trying to pursue peace? Well, they do they do come together obviously because I was raised in a Christian family and uh, I got uh, you know interested also in economic policies and, uh, and 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 saw things as they were evolving, but then the. Uh, even though I entered politics, probably it would be safe to say that I had a greater emphasis uh, and interest in the, the economic system and monetary policy because of the 1970s. But it didn't take me long to sort of put it all together that, you know, a, a financial system like what we have with the Fed is designed to promote war and empires and propaganda, you know, and control and wealth control. So it, it all, all comes together. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's quite simple. Uh, 
if uh, you accept the uh, principle that uh, government shouldn't be doing the things that we're not allowed to do, and most people accept, you know, the basic Christian principles that we shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, or kill. You know, that's not too complex, even though a lot of people still do that. Most people, the very large majority of people say, you know, that's not a very good society. And so that, uh, that background in uh, Christian convictions, along with the type of system that we would have in foreign policy, that we wouldn't initiate aggression against a, a, another uh, person and, or another country. It, it, to me, all comes together. And uh, the, the, the little booklet that I wrote on the swords and the plowshares, I tried to emphasize my personal experience, what it was like remembering World War II, and some of the crazy things that come about uh, in war times about uh, how people wake up and look at each other in battles and see individuals you know, and, and look people in the eye, and uh, all of a sudden it's harder to shoot rifles. So I, I claim there's an instinct uh, that is very strong for peace. What I do in that book is try to say that, you know, there's been horrendous, tremendous progress, you, you know, uh, with, uh, with, with the um, benefits of the, uh, the uh, in, uh, industrial revolution, you know, that technology has been fantastic, the standard of living has raised, been raised for a lot of people in, in the freer societies. And I argue that uh, the civilization is very, very young. Uh, Christianity is very, very young, 2,000 years, and there's no reason in the world why we can't advance as a culture and as a, as a people and as a civilization that we can use some of our brilliance to work for a peaceful society uh, rather than just using all our abilities and, and, and technology to promote war. For instance, you know, like the uh, nuclear, nuclear developments, uh, you know, nuclear power can, you know, be a godsend to helping people, but it also can be used to destroy nations. So, uh, unfortunately, so much of our technology has been used to uh, promote war, and I, I just believe that someday uh, the opportunity should be open to us believing that a society can go and work more for peaceful relationships. And I know the freer the society, the more prosperous society is, the more likely it is that we might be able to uh, develop those conditions. And certainly there's pretty good evidence that uh, the, the emphasis on the individual responsibility of Christianity had played a significant role in the uh, in the in the development of free markets and uh, the principles of liberty. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Paul. Uh, your organization is the the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. What's the the website that people can go to to sign up for your lists and and find out more? And and that that would be one one called dot uh, uh, org. Uh, you know, is the one. And we're having a conference in December, in in September. Also, what I do a lot is the Ron Paul Liberty Report uh, dot com too. All right. Fantastic. Well, we certainly encourage all our listeners to uh, check that out and subscribe to your lists. Dr. Ron Paul, thank you so much for being with us here today. Very good. Great to be with you. And that concludes our special 9-11 episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. We want to thank all three of our experts for joining us here for this very unique episode. It was It was truly fascinating to to be able to speak to them and to get their insights and to to learn from their 
from their experience and their expertise. So on behalf of Doug Stewart and myself and the entire Libertarian Christian Institute, we want to thank our three experts for joining us for this very special episode, and we want to thank you for listening. And most of all, we ask uh, that the Lord would bless our efforts to pursue peace in this world. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.